in a book called Founding Brothers. Uh, the author, whose name is Joe Ellis, in his book Founding Brothers, Joe Ellis writes this. In 1780, Major John Andre was captured while attempting to serve as a British spy who was in league with Benedict Arnold to produce a major strategic debacle on the Hudson River at West Point. By all accounts, this man, Andre, John Andre, was a model British officer with impeccable manners, of course, who just simply had the misfortune of being caught doing his duties. So several members of George Washington's staff, uh, including Hamilton, pleaded that this British officer's life be spared because of his exceptional character and his military record. Washington totally dismissed all those requests. He dismissed them as sentimental and pointed out that if Andre had succeeded in his mission, it might very well have turned out to change the tide of the entire war. And so the staff continued to try to support Major John Andre's gallant request that, that he be shot like an officer rather than hanged as a spy. George Washington also rejected that request, explaining that regardless of Major John Andre's personal attractiveness or his military record, he was no more and no less than a spy, and Washington had him hanged the next day. George Washington understood what was at stake in that conflict, in the Revolutionary War. He had a clear vision of right and wrong, and he acted based on what he knew to be right, regardless of the consequences for him personally. And whether it was right or wrong to hang Major John Andre had nothing to do with his military rank, his social standing, his stately British appearance or polite manners, or any sort of affection that his character might generate. Washington thought he deserved to be hanged, and he had him hanged. I tell you that story because we live in a world, and we're in the church. Contexts where there is a desperate need for men and women like George Washington. People who are gripped by the truth of the Word of God, so that the arbiter of what is right and wrong is what God says. We need people who understand that God calls the church to do and to hold to that truth with no favoritism. No favoritism shown to those who might be particularly influential, who have a certain social standing, or who seem nice to us. The main point of the letter of the church in Thyatira is that they needed to do their job regardless of the consequences to themselves personally or to the world outside. They needed to exclude the unrepentant Jezebel, but they did not. Revelation 2, 18 to 29, indicate that this Jezebel had been called to repentance, in fact, but she refused to repent. And now the church in Thyatira was tolerating her in her unrepentant state. They were allowing her to, in the church, remain influential in her unrepentant state. 
And as a result, we have this letter where Jesus promises to judge this Jezebel and her children. And he likewise, without any favoritism shown for anyone in particular, he threatens those who committed adultery with her, in a sense, with the same judgment that he would bring upon her. Those are the hard words of the letter to the church at Thyatira today. This church in Thyatira needed to exclude this Jezebel, and they shouldn't have hesitated to do so because she might have been particularly attractive or eloquent or influential, or maybe she claimed to be a prophet. They should have done what they knew to be right because what was at stake in the church there is what's at stake in the church now and in our hearts. What's at stake is the glory of God being made known. Revelation 2, 18 to to 29 here, can be broken down to three main sections that we've got in your study notes there. You can look at those and follow along. Note those in your study notes there. Uh, We've listed those for you. And in the intro here, we see in verse 18 that Jesus is identified as the searching and the pure Davidic king. There's that first section there we'll see that Jesus is identified as this Davidic king who is absolutely pure in character. And, and he's done so, he, he's described that way in terms that remind us of passages like, if you're taking notes, 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2, uh, two key passages there. In the second section here, in verses 19 through 25, uh, we see that the church was supposed to exclude this Jezebel. Those who were leading the church failed to do that. They failed to exercise godly justice against the seducer Jezebel. And in the third section here in 26 through 29, uh, Jesus promises that those who keep his commands will rule in the kingdom with him. So uh, heavy stuff today. Let's go ahead and read Revelation 2, 18 through 29 together. Follow along here. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Here's that second section. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and servant, service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants, to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Uh, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Then 26 starts that last section of the promises. The the one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Last week we looked at the church at Pergamum 
who had people who tolerated false teaching that had infiltrated the church. And so Jesus, last week in, in, in that church, sort of fired a warning shot with his letter and said, this is going to get worse if you don't do something about this. And then we have thus this letter this week in Thyatira. We'll see the situation get even worse in Sardis next week. There is this sort of a downward slide in these three churches in the middle of the seven churches. We've got two on either side and then the three in the middle here. And it's this downward slide that gets worse from church to church. And we'll see it next week in Sardis. So look at verse 18 again here. This is Jesus who introduces himself to the church in a way that reminds them of the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. If, if they were hearing this, it would have reminded them of that text in 2 Samuel 7. It says there in 2 Samuel 7, this is verses 12 and 14, it says, and this is the Lord making his promise to David, a promise, a covenant with David. It says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He says, I will be to him. In other words, I will be to that offspring of you, David, a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so this, this father-son language is picked up throughout Scripture. In Psalm 2, especially here, where we read this, where it says, You are my son, the Lord said to me, You are my son, capital S, today I have begotten you. You may remember that word begotten from John 3.16, his only begotten son. Uh, so, so the Bible continues to pick up on this language. And it's important to see here in verse 18 of Revelation 2 that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God, the words of the Son of God. And he goes, goes on to announce that, that he is the authority for this church in Thyatira. He's saying, I am the Davidic king in line of those who were promised from David. So he's establishing at the outset of the letter his authority. Uh, notice also at the end, uh, he reestablishes his authority by saying, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the letter is bracketed beginning and end with the authority of the, the pure and searching Davidic king. So in this sort of son of God language here, uh, there's also, by the way, this, this sort of hint of saying to the emperor, to the Caesar of the day, uh, that Roman emperor who demanded that his subjects worship him, Jesus is saying no Roman emperor is going to compete with the real son of God. They called themselves son of God. In fact, they would sign their letters that way. Emperor Caesar, son of the God Julius, to give them a sense of deity because they were to be worshipped by their subjects. So, so as an encouragement to these believers in Thyatira who lived in that Roman Empire, Jesus says, listen, I know you're being told that you're going to have to worship the emperor in order to succeed in business and, and to win friends and influence people. But, but he's saying, I am the one true Son of God, capital S. So no emperor is going to share my throne, is what he's saying. He continues to describe himself in 2.18, as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the language used in Daniel 10 where Daniel has a vision, a heavenly vision. And it says he has eyes like flaming torches and his arms and legs are like the gleam of burnished or, or polished bronze. This reference here to his eyes being like a flame of fire means that he, he is 
He is searching. It means that uh, it means that he is absolutely pure in his searching out, and he sees everything, and nothing escapes his gaze. He knows everything. We've looked at the risen Christ in past weeks, and we've seen this this phenomenon of him coming to these churches and saying, "I know your works. I know. I watch. I see." <laughs> I see what you don't even realize and understand. And so this, this eyes of flame of fire means that nothing escapes him. And burnished bronze here is just a polished uh, and a pure metal. Uh, you can sort of see yourself in it. It's, it's so clear. So Revelation 2.18 is making the point clear to us that Jesus is the king. Not some emperor, not some, some idol that, that may be worshipped in your town for, for them there. This is that saying that Jesus is king, that he sees all, that he is pure in his judgments. He alone, in fact, is pure in his judgments. He isn't beholden to anyone. He is beholden only to his own pure and holy character and nature. That's the place. His pure character and nature is the place from which his judgments come. And so that is a king who is worthy of your worship. That's what we're being taught here. We are inspired here even now to worship him because he's a God who faithfully keeps his covenant, his promises to us. Those promises he made in 2 Samuel 7 and in Psalm 2. It's why we're gathered here. Because in our own lives we see how those promises live out. And we come here and gather to to name him as the king, the one true son of God. So he comes to this church in Thyatira announcing himself as that that true Son of God, the, the pure and Davidic King, who is, who is searching out, who is searching out for followers. So in, so in 19 through 25, that next section here, Jesus sees the need for them to exclude this Jezebel. He faults the church there for tolerating this Jezebel. And this section can be broken down into three parts there uh, that we mentioned there in the study notes. Uh, verse 19, he commends them for some things. We'll talk about that in a second. 20 through 23, he focuses on Jezebel and her children. In other words, those who, who end up following her, disciples of Jezebel. And then he says to hold what you have, that is, onto the gospel. So verse 19 here, and jump back there at verse 19. This is Jesus commending. He's encouraging the church. He's saying, good job for this. Actually, he says five things quickly. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. Not only does he name these things quickly, but he also says, your latter works exceed the first. In other words, there's some growth going on here even in this church. But that growth is probably in number and not necessarily in kind. There is some growth here, but it is probably only a growth in number. Like your works are increasing in number, but they're not necessarily going deeper in relationship with me. They're doing, they're doing more good things, but they're stuck They're stuck in just doing good things (laughs) without moving on to the better and more important things that we'll see Jesus take them to task for. I think think there are lots of Christians and churches who get stuck in that like doing good works thing. And and doing more good works is is spiritual growth, which it is, (laughs) but there's more that Jesus may be calling us to as a church like Thyatira, where if we are not careful and going deeper in our works, 
then we may miss some things that end up hurting the church. So they're just stuck in doing good things without moving on to better and more important things. How many of that, how many of us does that describe? <laughs> stuck in trying to do more without going deeper. How many churches and believers spin their wheel trying to do more of the same instead of going deeper with the Lord in obedience to whatever the next thing he calls you to might be? Verses 20 to 23 here explain Jezebel and her disciples. So Jesus says, you've been doing good, but, but go deeper. And here's this place you need to go deeper. And I have this against you, verse 20. He says, I have this against you. In fact, he says, but I have this against you. He's just said, you've done this and this and this and this. And that's all good and well. But, but you need to grow in this place. But I have this against you that you tolerate. You let go that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, he says, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus identifies the problem in the church here as this toleration of this Jezebel. He even says he gave her time to repent, but she refuses to. It seems that this Jezebel had been called to repentance by this church, which is why Jesus can say, I gave her time to repent. She knows the stakes. You as a church have gone somewhat far enough, but not as far as I want you to. This perhaps indicates that they had started that process of, of church discipline in Matthew 18. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, you need to read Matthew 18, 15 through 18 there. That became the New Testament church's model for how to deal with sin in the camp. And it was a very important development. We see, we see places later on in the New Testament where they make passing reference to it in a number of places because it had become the model for church discipline. So they had started that, but they'd only gone so far. Sounds like they'd started, but they didn't finish. They got halfway and were now just tolerating her, even though clearly the leaders in that church knew that they should not have tolerated her. <laughs> and, and even though she was given time to repent, she hadn't. And now Jesus is saying, well, church, now. And to eat food sacrificed to idols. At several points in these letters, Jesus, as we've seen already, he addresses a problem of imposters. Apparently Jesus doesn't like fake faith. In Ephesus, that we read about, in Revelation 2.2, they are dealing with those who call themselves apostles and are not. In Smyrna, in Revelation 2.9, they're dealing with those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And here in Thyatira, they have a woman who calls herself a prophetess, but who is not. So Jesus here in this passage is saying, friends, you cannot fake, <laughs> you cannot fool the one, capital O, who has eyes like a flame of fire. It's not going to work. He's saying you may fool some people around you for a little while, but it's not going to work in the long term. Faking doesn't work with someone who's got eyes who search out and know everything. So as a result of this Jezebel's false teaching, the servants of Jesus are engaging, some of them, in sexual immorality and idolatry. And there were 
clearly consequences that could be seen without having to have eyes that were like a flame of fire. And this church was tolerating that wicked and godly behavior. So this, this false prophetess, this Jezebel, uh, who is most likely not actually named uh, Jezebel, but is representative of the Old Testament figure of Jezebel. You know any people who name their daughters Jezebel? Probably not actually her name, but she was called as much uh, a functional Jezebel because of her actions. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was this foreigner who had married the Israelite king Ahab and who led him to idolatry. So, so get this part straight. This Jezebel in the Old Testament did not belong to the people of God, but she infiltrated the people of God and led them into idolatry. And then she married King Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, which is the kingdom that broke away from the Davidic kingdom in the south. So here in Revelation 2, identifying this false prophetess as a Jezebel calls her out as someone who is usurping Jesus' authority. She's attempting to steal God's glory from him, attempting to sit on the throne that's meant for only Jesus. And Jesus is saying, she may have fooled some of you, but she hasn't fooled me. And I even gave her time to repent. So he's saying in this letter, church, do your job. Unrepentant imposters who infiltrate my people will, over time, lead them astray. She had refused to repent here. She'd refused to repent. And that brings us to an important point. That is to say that that those who belong to Jesus repent of sin. Those who belong to Jesus repent of their sin. When they are confronted with a holy and perfect and sinless God who bore for them their ugly sin, then they repent. They are broken and they are humble instead of prideful and arrogant. In fact, in this passage and in the New Testament, the refusal to repent of sin is the mark of someone who is unregenerate, someone whose heart is not reborn. So I ask you, We should all ask ourselves, how do I respond when confronted with sin? How do you confront sin? How do you respond when you're confronted with your sin? Does it just just make you angry only? (laughs) Do you respond like a Jezebel who is bent on taking others down with you? Or if you're a child of God, does it make you humble? and more grateful that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. How about this? Does, it, does being confronted with sin make you more zealous to turn away from sin in the future? I hope so. Or does it make you feel like you need to be more careful so that you're not caught next time? By refusing to repent here, Jezebel declared that that she did not belong to the people of God. She had been given chances. In fact, grace is in this passage a couple different times. 
once it was clear that she was unrepentant, then the church, and this is what church discipline is all about, the church had a responsibility to tell her the truth that she was not right with God and to respond with repentance. That's what church discipline is all about, bringing someone to a right relationship with God. And the leaders in Thyatira had a responsibility to protect the flock, to exclude her from the church. Instead, they tolerated her. They let it go. And as a result of their inaction, as we see in verse 20, she was seducing my servants. In other words, she was leading God's people astray. It would be as if George Washington let that major John Andre guy go and let him free to go help Benedict Arnold. That's what happens. That's what happens when a church like Thyatira doesn't do its job. We become party to the consequences of it. And Jesus says clearly here, there are consequences to allowing that. And he himself holds that against the church. In verses 22 and 3 here, Jesus makes clear what he will do to Jezebel and to the servants who indulge in sin with her, his own servants. 22 says this, look at this. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. That's not a great tribulation described later on in Revelation. Sorry. Unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Notice here that Jesus is in effect calling his own servants who are sinning with her to repentance. It's the goal for the church discipline for them as well. Church discipline isn't just to kick somebody out. Church discipline is what happens when the Holy Spirit's in charge and conviction of sin happens in the lives of individuals who are a part of the congregation. Repentance is always the goal for all of us. It doesn't just happen once when on that day you came down the aisle and said, I, I need to follow Jesus, I repent. Those who belong to Jesus will repent, are repenters. Those who do not belong to Jesus do not and will not. This uh, reference here in verse 22 there, this reference to throwing her onto a sickbed and her co-conspirators into great tribulation is a way of saying that Jesus is purging his world of sin. That's what, the, that's what redemption is doing and, and part of what he's doing with the process of redemption. We'll talk more about this throughout Revelation. It's a pretty heavy one, but, but, but Jesus is purging the world of sin. She and her children with her will be killed. And, then, and, and here's grace even again, it says, unless they repent of her works. He's saying here that the children, the children of Jezebel are the seed of the serpent in the garden. He is named there as Satan later on in verse 24. Those who learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Those who do not repent and who share in her works also share in the works of the evil one. And King Jesus here is saying that those who do so are done for. The result of this, of these consequences here, is the healthy fear of a God who knows all. Verse 23 is where we see that here. He says, All the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. 
This is the Jesus with eyes like a flame of fire who knows all things. And he continues and says, I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus will judge justly as the pure and the holy king. So hold what you have, verses 24 and 5. The rest of you who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, to you I say, do not, I do not lay on you any other burden. He's saying here, I have nothing else against you. In verse 20, he said, I have this against you. But here he's saying, I have nothing else against you other than referring to this Jezebel that they're tolerating. He's saying to get rid of her and to protect the flock. And he says this, verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. What they have is the gospel. And holding it fast means living it out. Clinging to the good news of freedom from sin by drawing a line between those who believe the gospel and repent of their sin and those who refuse to repent of their sin, showing that they do not believe the gospel. And in doing so, we receive the promises in the next verses. 26 through 29 here, it says this. Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This string of phrases used here comes right out of Psalm 2 and uh, reflects the authority that the Father has given to the Son. And Jesus here is promising that the one who conquers, and this is the crazy part, <laughs> the one who conquers will rule with Him. There is no greater promise. There is no greater goal. There is no more significant reward for anyone than being with God forever in perfect relationship and enjoying His glory. Repentant hearts can't wait to share in His glory. To see Him made known in full measure. One of the lessons of this passage is that if we want to rule in the future with God, we have to be faithful to Him in the present. If we want to see who God is in full measure and in His glory and in His perfection and not be wiped away as we would be now. Preparing for that means faithfulness in the present. And it's a hard truth, but it's a truth that's all over Scripture. That the process of being disciplined, the process of church discipline, which has repentance as its goal, is preparation for ruling with Christ. So be careful. Be careful about how we talk about the body of Christ.
It is the God-designed way for us to continue to become who He created us to be. Giving ourselves to the process of being held accountable to the body of Christ takes us to places we wouldn't ourselves go. Because you and I aren't in charge of this. Jesus is in charge of this. He's the one who is searching, who is pure, who knows and sees all. He's the one calling His own to repent of sin. He's the one who says, I will give authority. The one who conquers. The one who keeps my works. Even as I myself have received authority, I will give to Him perfect relationship forever. Father in Heaven, we are desperately in need of becoming people who give ourselves, who open our hearts to Your work in our lives. We sometimes selfishly believe that we know what that work looks like. Father, help us to be people who submit ourselves to the way You work, to what You're doing that we would humbly accept accountability and discipline, that Your Holy Spirit would convict and show us where You might look in our lives and say, I have this against you. Continue to shape us, Lord, so that Your judgment this side of heaven wouldn't be seen as something to avoid, but something to welcome. as an act of grace that makes us people you've created us to be. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray.